0: a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this installment. So follow the program at danproftshow.com. On social media at Danproft and or at Dan Proft show, I post a lot of stuff on both accounts, so you can check them both out and uh, with violence plaguing the the big cities in America, New York, Chicago, Portland, Seattle, Atlanta, uh, but not limited to them, President Trump uh, said the announcement is coming next week about something he plans to do about that violence, whether, uh, I think, whether some of those big city mayors want his help or not.
3: Something that I think at this point the American people want to see, Uh, they've been run very poorly, these cities, whether it's Seattle, where we were getting ready to go in and they decided to go in and that's good. Uh, Minneapolis, where we had the National Guard go in and as soon as they did that, we straightened that mess out. They should have been able to do it locally with their police. Their police are good, they were told not to do anything or many other cases. We're doing a great job in Portland. Portland uh, was very rough, and they called us in, and we did a good job, to put it mildly. Many people in jail right now. Uh, But we have other cities that are out of control. They're like war zones. And if the city isn't going to straighten it out, of local politicians, or in this case — I don't say this for political reasons — they're all Democrats. They're liberal, left-wing Democrats. And it's almost like they think this is going to be this way forever, where in Chicago, 68 people were shot. And 18 died last week. We're not going to put up with that. We're not going to put up with that. So that's uh, for our next discussion.
2: So we'll be interested to hear what uh, may be forthcoming when Brett Bear joins us uh, momentarily. One other thing, though, uh, just in terms of the resistance he'll get from big city mayors. I think what uh, Mayor Warren Wilhelm had to say this week uh, is an indication of the kind of resistance. They don't even recognize there's a problem. Listen to Bill de Blasio. We now have fewer people in our jails
4: than any time since World War II. And we are safer for
2: it and better for it. NBC 4 in New York City from July 1st. NYC homicides soared 21% in the first six months of 2020, shootings up 46%. And he's arguing that the metric is the prison population and that we're safer and better for it. Well, demonstrably, New York City is not safer and better for it. I mean, that's a sort of some sort of corollary to the Fox-Butterfield effect that we're witnessing from de Blasio. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, special report, 5 p.m. Chicago time during the week, and the author of the number one bestseller, Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II. Brett, thanks for being with us. Morning. Do you have any uh, indication from those little birdies that visit you inside the Beltway what uh, the president plans for next week as it pertains to violence in, in big U.S. cities?
4: No, not yet, but there's uh, definitely an indication that there's a federal action that's uh, that's pending. You know, he just held a, a little bit of a and a with the press and the Oval Office and with the attorney general about uh, going after MS-13, that the gang that um, – has murdered and and caused all kinds of violence, especially in the Northeast, uh, but not limited to there. And they captured the the leader and going after uh, the death penalty in in charging him. Um, So I think that they're going to continue down this road of law and order and what that looks like as far as uh, the different cities that are really problematic. uh, I don't know yet. I mean, obviously you have Portland who the mayor has said uh, and the governor has said Um, The federal officials are inciting the violence, whereas, you know, every night there's some kind of protest that turns violent.
2: Yeah, uh, that's and that's it's a very different uh, uh, position than you receive from watching what's happening, from hearing from uh, other voices in Portland that. uh perhaps are a little bit less ideology, ideological, and less Trump focused, as well as from police officers in Portland. There was a, a good interview from a police officer in Portland uh, describing exactly what's happening. And, and interestingly, too, uh, he describes uh, how uh, it's um, you know, he's a black officer and he talks about uh, when he when he has. Uh, young black people come up and they want to talk to him and why do not you talk to me and every time that this is what he says every time he starts to engage some black resident of portland some you know white person runs up and intercedes like it's you know organized uh, uh effort to keep black officers from talking to black people and and being constructive in any way
4: yeah i mean it's sad it's it's sad when when fighting violence and supporting police departments is somehow political. Um, You know, I think Joe Biden is trying to get through there saying, I am not for defunding police, but he is for, you know, supporting some things that that have raised questions, which is why the National Association of Police Organizations, uh, which endorsed Biden and Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012, Endorsed uh, President Trump this year.
2: But do you think there's a growing recognition, uh, particularly amongst sophisticated groups like that police organization, says, you know what, we know Joe Biden for a long time, um, and Joe Biden may be saying one thing, but I see everyone around Joe Biden. And I see, you know, sort of how much control Joe Biden really has of the situation. And I know it's not going to be Joe Biden making those decisions. Or if he is, it's going to be heavily influenced by these other elements that are serious when they talk about defunding police. You know, people like the Berkeley City Council, which just uh, I think first in the nation, just uh, took traffic stops away from police and are using unarmed civilian uh, city workers.
4: Yeah, I think that there's a real concern about uh, basically commanding control of the the Biden operation and what it would look like is as President Biden. And uh, that's that's raising its head. I I think that this issue is a a big issue. I do think that uh, covid in this current environment has trumped it
5: Mm -hmm.
4: as hard as that is to believe. Now, in those individual cities, that may not be the case. But overall in the nation, um, it is the case.
2: Uh, And and talking a little bit about K through twelve education generally, and the unions' control of K through twelve education, particularly in these big cities, but also in a lot of suburban communities.
4: I think that's fair, and I think it's a you know on the issue of education, which often doesn't get uh, delved into in a presidential campaign as much as it should. Uh, that will will come up this time. I was struck by this MSNBC piece. I don't know if you've seen it, where they had six or so medical experts. And oh yeah. Um, and infectious disease experts, and they went down the row saying, would you send your kids to school now? And they went down and said, yes, yes, yes. So I think that, you know, we just have to be careful. If you're going to say let the science run the day, okay, let's do it. Let's see where it goes. Uh,
2: what about uh, uh, Tom Friedman last week in The New York Times? Uh, uh, I don't know if it was a trial balloon or if it was something that had been uh, – more um, uh, focus group tested, but proposed that Biden should essentially back out of the debate unless uh, two uh, stipulations are met. One is that there be a fact checking panel uh, that would have the last 10 minutes of the debate to go after all of the statement to go uh, review all the statements made by both candidates and say which was true and which wasn't, which is really, really interesting. And
4: that might not have worked for Obamacare.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, but but also uh, and, and then so so and he also wants to limit the number of debates to so less than three. The, so the question is, are, do they see that as the only wild card uh, preventing a Biden victory? And so they're either going to try and get him out of the debates or get him more help on the debate stage.
4: I think that's a factor, and I definitely have heard that that is being considered, like all of those stipulations to, again, make it a poison pill and say, well, we just can't do it. But you can do that maybe if it is truly 10 to 15-point lead. But if, as we suspect, that there is some, you know, like the internals of these campaigns show it at about maybe five points, uh, and that's nationally, not in – Swing. You know, battleground states. Right. If it's less than than the big lead, I, I'm not sure. I think he could lose significant points from independents who say, "Listen, I need to see my president debate."
2: Absolutely. Um, before we let you go, last thing: Cudlow uh, and Minuchin, Gasparino, Charlie Gasparino over at Fox Business reporting that there's a bit of a an internal struggle over what uh, form the next disaster relief slash stimulus bill should take. Uh, Kudlow wants payroll tax cut as does Laffer and Steve Moore and, and the free marketeers and Mnuchin doesn't think it gets through the house. And so he just wants to send out another round of checks as well as extend the enhanced unemployment benefits, which would be uh really disastrous, I think. And also something the president said he wouldn't do. So what's your handle on what's going to come out of the white house in terms of the next bill?
4: I think there's internal, um, push and pull and, uh You know, they don't have a lot of leeway with the House, and I think uh, Mnuchin's point is we need to move now. Um, The closer you get to election, the tougher it is to get big things through, even if it's an emergency situation. So there are already some Republicans pushing back on a number of the big ticket items. Um, So I I suspect it's going to be next week that they start to formulate what it looks like.
2: He is Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, <coughs> excuse me, special report, 5 p.m. Chicago time during the week. Number one bestselling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II. Brett, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it.
6: Thanks,
7: guys.
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back. We uh, were talking to Brett Barron before the break and a conversation I referenced uh, this uh, Portland police officer and what he had to say about what his experience has been on the street trying to interact with some of the protesters who are not violent, who are not Antifa, who are black, and he's a black police officer. And uh, I sort of characterized what he said, but uh, now that we've got a little bit more time here, uh, I want to actually hear what he said, because I think it's important for you to hear from the officer in his own words. This is a Portland police officer. His name is Jakari Jackson. And uh, here's what he said about what he's seeing on the street over the last six weeks of uninterrupted violence, no thanks to, uh, or I should say, actually thanks to uh, the mayor of Portland, not Kyle McLaughlin, Portland would probably be better off with the guy from Portlandia. But uh, Ted Wheeler, who's blamed Trump first. Now he's blaming the police, saying yesterday the police are actually escalating the violence on the street. You listen to Jakari Jackson. You tell me if you think this is an officer interested in escalating or de-escalating the violence.
1: I got to see folks that really do want change, like the rest of us, that have been impacted by racism. Um, And then I got to see those people get faded out. People that have no idea what racism is all about, never experienced racism, that don't even know that the tactics that they are using are the same tactics that were used against my people, and they don't even know their, they don't even know the history. They don't know what they're saying coming from someone who graduated from PSU with a history degree. It's 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 actually frightening on how you know they say if you don't know your history you repeat it, and watching people do that to other people just because of what they decide to do with their
2: life. All right, talking about targeting police, and all police are, you know, pigs, uh, frying like bacon, as the chant goes. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, a slight uh, pushback to Officer Jackson. You don't have to experience something in order to comment on it or to understand it. That's number one. Um, however, he's absolutely right about knowing the history so you understand it. That you do have to know. And uh, the irony of... Uh, Just as we talked about with uh, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture yesterday, the irony of promoting something you decry. You're so twisted up. You're so intellectually lost. You're so identitarian addled that you end up behaving or promoting, you know, behaving in a way or promoting something that you're otherwise saying you're out to stop. Jakari Jackson, uh, the officer in Portland. Went on to talk about the Marxist white splaining that occurs any time uh, a, a young person, a young black person, uh, tries to have a conversation with them, a constructive conversation with them on the street.
1: A lot of times, someone of color, black, Hispanic, Asian, come up to the fence and directly want to talk to me. Hey, what do you think about George Floyd? What do you think about what happened about this? I go up to the fence. Someone white comes up. F the police. Don't talk to him. That was the most. Bizarre thing, because I could I could see it I could see it coming. I even had a young African American girl uh, tell me why is it you guys aren't talking to us? I said, honestly, this is now the twenty I think it was twenty third day of doing it. Every time I try to have a conversation with someone that looks like me, someone white comes up and blocks them and tells them not to talk. And then right when I said that, this white girl popped right in front of her. She said, "He just said that was going to happen." I said, "Told you, I told you." <laughs> she and she looked at the girl and why did you do that? And I, 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 I straight up, I say, you know, I've been called the N-word. She's been called the N-word. Why are you talking to me this way? Why do you feel that she can't speak for herself to me? Why is it that you feel you need to speak for her when we're having a
2: conversation? Mm. This is uh, something that we talked about with Bob Johnson, too, the founder of BET Television. You know, Bob Johnson saying, uh, you know, we don't need uh, white people to tell us what our interests are. Uh, to tell us uh, what we should be thinking about, the policies we should be proposing. We, we can, we got so we got our own ideas. We can make our own decisions. We have agency, that word again, agency, autonomy, a uh, aspect of, a unique aspect of white culture, according to the National <laughs> Museum of African-American History and Culture. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's what uh, Jackson is talking about there. We have agency. We don't need your neo-Marxist white whitesplaining about what's going on or about how we should feel, or what we should do. You're going to need it. So it's instructive, that little vignette is instructive about the point of the ideological force behind so much of the unrest, particularly when it becomes violent. The ideological component, it's race instead of, quote-unquote, class being used as the lever for Marxism again, for the umpteenth time, go read Black Lives Matter's What We Believe manifesto. It's clear. Go look online and listen to Patrice Cullors, for example, one of the co-founders, talk. Or, you know, white dude, Sean White. And so many others. And now, instead of uh, having opportunities for constructive engagement, because of course black police officers are being accused by again these the ideologically inclined as traitors to their race because of their chosen course of work, as Officer Jackson said. Uh, in uh, big cities around the country, you have people being caught in the crossfire. The uh, pre-adolescent that was killed in Atlanta, the more than a dozen teenagers or younger that have been killed in Chicago. And, oh, by the way, in Chicago, shooting kids on the street is not just for weekends anymore. Last night, in a relatively wealthier part of Chicago, wealthier neighborhood in Chicago, you had three individuals under the age of 25 shot, including a five-month-old. A five-month-old shot in one of the wealthier neighborhoods in Chicago. Thankfully, was grazed uh on his temple and was stabilized. So uh, the baby will survive, thankfully, as will the 19-year-old and the 25-year-old who were taken to Northwestern Hospital in Chicago and whose condition was stabilized. Here again, New York decrying a 46% increase in shootings year over year with more than 600 shootings in calendar year 2020. Chicago, with one-third, one-fourth of the population of New York, 2,000 shootings so far this year, 2,000 shootings, three times, 3X plus New York's total, one quarter of the population. That's how bad it is here. And uh, thus, building on what you heard at the top of the hour from President Trump about uh, the announcement he's going to make next week, Kaylee McEnany, his uh, press secretary, had this to say specifically about uh, Mayor Triple Threat, Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago.
5: I've listed for you the names of these kids who have died across this country. It is unacceptable. And under this president, he'll take action. And the derelict mayor of Chicago should step up and ask for federal help because she's doing a very poor job at securing her streets.
2: And uh, Twitter slash Podium Cowboy, Lori Lightfoot's response to Kaylee McEnany was, watch your mouth, Karen. Because unfortunately, in Chicago, in New York, in Seattle, in Portland, in Atlanta, just being opposed to Trump is enough, it would appear, at least for the time being, for majority of the constituents of, of the majority of the residents of those cities, the constituents of these leftist politicians. And it's particularly sad because what you have is so many people being willing participants in their own demise, whether it's by the choices they're making and not fully appreciating what's happening or being led by ignorant neo-Marxist privileged white kids like on the streets of Portland. This is Dan Prof.
7: Take me home to the
8: place
0: I You're listening to the Dan Prof show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Julian Castro is back. Remember him? He was a presidential candidate once upon a time in a bygone era. Former HUD secretary writing an op-ed for CNN.com. Of course he was. And uh, Mr. Nanaway would not uh, bend the knee, would not apologize, basically told people to go pound sand. Uh, Julian Castro, the lesson CEO should learn from Goya's big fumble. Big fumble. What uh, uh, Mr. Nonaway doesn't seem to appreciate is that his words have consequences. They give cover to Trump's bigotry and prop up a man who seems determined to make life harder for people of color in this country. That's why prominent Latino leaders, including AOC and Lynn manuel Miranda, are encouraging customers to reconsider purchasing Goya products. And uh, Ruben Navarrete also uh, weighed in on this, saying this isn't cancel culture, the calls to boycott Goya the demands for an apology this isn't cancel culture the Goya CEO is just a moron uh, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans are proud people says Ruben Navarrete Jr. and many of us take extreme offense at being treated as a prop by Trump uh, so much so that if you visit the White House step into the Rose Garden stand in a podium and praise Trump will come after you especially if you're a Latino and got rich off the back of, of the backs of Mexican customers huh yeah, um, really interesting observation. Take extreme offense at being treated as a prop by Trump. Uh, is there a particular movement that plays mascot politics uh, better than and more relentlessly than any polit- any individual politician on the planet? The entire identitarian movement that undergirds the Democrat Socialist Party of twenty twenty is mascot politics. We just had an example in Chicago of uh, Lori Lightfoot uh, enlisting a a black cowboy to be our census cowboy. I mean, literal mascot. So the infantilization that's associated with mascot politics. uh, It'd be interesting to have that conversation with Castro or Navarrete where they think that is predominant. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Gerard uh, Gerard Baker. He is an editor at large of The Wall Street Journal. Gerard Baker, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Pleasure to be with you. um, So you you wrote a piece uh, that uh, tackled the cancel culture a bit and um, also from um – Uh, perspective of uh, an immigrant to this country, which is always interesting to hear from immigrants to this country. People have some broader perspective uh, and and an outsider's view on this to some extent that uh, is really interesting because oftentimes we find um, immigrants to America are the greatest proponents of America and those who have enjoyed all the benefits from birth are um, less uh, enthusiastic about the country. It's very interesting. But but sort of the, the general question Uh, Is the cancel culture real or are these, you know, flare ups like with the Goya CEO with a a professor at Princeton here and a professor somewhere else and some other uh, person of profile suffering some some uh, career uh, setback because of their political views? Are these just one offs that are being overblown by conservatives or is this a real purge that's going on Soviet style that we should be concerned about?
6: it's real uh, it is and you talk to anybody uh, on any of these campuses and um, or in any of these media organizations or as we're seeing increasingly in corporations by the way especially in the big tech firms that dominate so much of our lives now but but as you're saying even in companies uh, you know a company like a company like Goya which you wouldn't think would be a, a politically controversial uh, wouldn't be producing particularly controversial topics it's real and for every one of these people who are being cancelled or being uh, publicly shamed there are and I've heard this directly from people at uh, colleges and in media, there are dozens who are too afraid even to speak up. Um, you know, there's this uh, remarkable example just we just had in the last week of this professor at Princeton who took issue to the uh, letter that was sent by many of the faculty at Princeton calling for the most radical changes in the way Princeton University operates by, for example, giving, uh, you know, commi- creating committees like Soviets, like, like they used to have in the Soviet Union, where people would review other people's work. Uh, this professor has now been public. He, he opposed that and said this was a terrible idea, wrong, and, and would, would restrict freedom of speech, he's now being denounced by his colleagues, he's been denounced by the head of the university it's, it's, it's again it's, it's, there are all these very high profile cases and for every one of those high profile cases there are so many more where people are just you know. and again it applies not just to universities not just to media companies, not just to the big tech companies but to many, to, to so many people in so many walks of life in this country that they are afraid now to say anything and by the way we're not talking about saying racist things of course nobody approves of anybody standing up and saying racist things we are saying anybody who challenges the prevailing orthodoxy. of the the Democratic Party, and particularly uh, uh, right now Black Lives Matter and their their allies, anybody who challenges any of that is publicly shamed and denounced. And so there is so much reluctance everywhere now for anybody to speak out. It is very, very real, and it's very turning. And the point I make in the column, Dan, just to quickly wrap up, um, is that this is going on when we have a, a Republican president? Republicans control half of uh, half of Congress at least. Um, and and imagine what it will be like when Republic when when if 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 and when Democrats control the government too. This is a genuinely scary moment, I think, for this country. And as you said, I'm an immigrant here. I love this country. I came to this country with my family. Uh, my children are, are all American citizens now. That are born here. Uh, we there's so much about this country to admire. And this is really a dangerous moment. I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. I really love to
0: watch them roll. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back. We're speaking with Gerard Baker, editor-at-large Wall Street Journal. And Gerard, in your piece in the journal about democracy dying in the darkness, you mentioned uh, the culture we have now where people are being uh, fired or otherwise professionally disciplined for things that they said or wrote decades prior. A specific case or two you were thinking of when you made that point?
6: Yeah, I mean, there was the guy at um, uh, was, I think it was Boeing, wasn't it, with the, who wrote a uh, wrote a, who wrote thirty uh, odd years ago, but back in the 1980s, about women in the military, about women being about. But this, but this, and it's worth it is worth remembering women in combat positions in the military. That was government. That was the policy of the country. That was the universally agreed upon position of Democrats and Republicans alike. It changed. You know, we then had you know in the 1990s it changed, and people have come to a different view on that now. And 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 that may well be the right thing to do. Many people now now accept that. But this is something that he wrote more than 30 years ago, which again was not even controversial back then but he's now being picked up and 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 being denounced and he was actually fired because of that article that he written 30 years ago people you know these these positions arguments about these things change I mean, take gay marriage a perfectly good example Barack Obama in, you know as late as 2010 was opposing get gay, gay, gay marriage you know he, the, the president the Democratic president of the United States opposed it said he didn't 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 support it 10 years later gay marriage is the law across most of the country are people going to go back and look at what people said 15 years ago about gay marriage or 20 years ago about Gay marriage and say this is outrageous and they to be denounced and they can be fired for it. I mean, this is this is a, this is very real and again, it's very very dangerous. Uh,
2: there's an interesting uh, an example of this on college campus. Walter Block is a professor of economics at Loyola University in New Orleans, and uh, you know he's a con- he's a libertarian, so he's, he's a bit of a provocateur, which is fine. I thought that's what you're supposed to do uh, in uh, places where you're pursuing um uh, intellectual development. I, I I used to think that I don't know, but he has written books like "Defending the Indefensible," where he argues uh, for legalization of prostitution and and and, uh, and other such things that are controversial. Uh, he is now under fire on campus because uh, students are suggesting that um, he uh, believes that slavery is wrong for the wrong reasons. Because it goes against libertarianism, not because it's morally yeah. wrong. Uh, in fact, Bloch's position, he, he repudiates slavery on both grounds, libertarianism and because it's morally wrong. He favors reparations, but not from all whites to all blacks. That's, that's, I mean, that's how, you know, his actual positions. But he did this thought experiment that uh, has now generated a call for his, his termination. Um, my, suppose my son has a dread disease. The cure costs $10 million, which I don't have. You do, so we make a deal. You give me the funds. I come to your farm to harvest your crops or to your home to give you an economics lesson. If you don't like the way I perform these duties, you may physically assault or kill me. Is this a legitimate contract in a free society? And he argues, yes, we both benefit. It's a mutually agreed upon exchange. Um, You can argue yes or no. It's an interesting thought experiment. But the point is, you you can't have thought experiments on college campuses. You can't make people think. They're just supposed to, to say, here is the acceptable position. Now repeat after me um you know that's that's the, that's the new sort of uh, uh norm in yeah. education from pre-k through post-secondary yeah
6: and you know it's ex- ex- exactly the point that you know universities are supposed to be um, are supposed to be places where people can exercise inquiry, right? So we, can, so we can understand the way in which the world works and the way in which it should work. They should be able to hypothesize, develop theories, challenge those theories. That's the only way, by the way, that you really actually expose bad ideas is by examining them. Uh, we don't get, as you say, you know, in, in philosophy, uh, the fundamental questions of life, economics, um, uh, social affairs, we, we only get to understand the way, in, the way in which policies work, the way in which society works. If we do allow people to examine and to challenge ideas. Some of them may seem crazy ideas, by the way, and it's good that we can expose those ideas as being crazy, but that of course is the way you do it. If you suppress those ideas, if you say you're not even allowed to examine that idea, whether it be, you know, what sounds like an extreme idea, some of those kind of, um, you know, the, the thoughts, uh, experiments, if you like, that you you, you've just given as an absolute. If you suppress them, the first thing that happens is you don't actually get any real ability to understand the way the world works, right? Because it, it's only by it's only by um, examining and challenging ideas like that you the world was. but secondly what you do is you push those ideas underneath they don't go away and actually they become uh, you know the, the surest way to get the bad ideas to get wider circulation ultimately is for you to try to suppress them and, uh, and that, again that's the other worrying thing here And one more thing I'll say is that what's particularly worrying about this assault on speech is that it's not that these people say, and I, and I mentioned this in the column, it's not that they challenge these ideas that people come up with by saying, um, you know, that's a bad idea, it won't work, it's wrong, um, it, it's a, it will lead to bad policy outcomes and we shouldn't do it. The way the language that's now used by the left on all of these things is you can't say that because it hurts me, because um, it harms me, because it threatens me, because it makes me feel unsafe. Uh, you know, when the New York Times, when they had to get rid of their, when they essentially fired their opinionators for running that, that, that piece, by Tom Cotton in the middle of the Black Lives Matter protest about uh, you know calling for the, 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 the mobilization of the military if necessary, and that all the all the journalists in the New York Times objected. They objected not by saying it's a bad idea, it's wrong, you know, it's crazy, it's you know, it won't work. They objected all of them by saying it puts my life in danger. But the, the problem with that argument, the problem with that approach to argument is it rules out, it delegitimizes the alternative argument. Because you can't say because if you say to someone you can't say that because you're threatening me because it because it harms me because it gives me because it, it might kill me. Then that literally is the kind of speech that, that typically we don't allow people to say. So it's it's a exactly. it, and it applies across the board now in policies. You know you hear Democrats talking about Republican health policies. Republican health policies are going to kill people. Republicans' taxation policies are going to kill people. They don't disagree. They don't challenge the ideas on the principle on the merits. They simply refuse to engage with those ideas and say you can't say them because you're going to hurt people. And that again is that's basically fascistic.
2: Well, that's it. It, it, That's what and that's exactly what they want to do. I mean, those who understand what they're doing, uh, there's a lot of automatons just going along, but um, make make speech violence and then you can eliminate speech. Uh, Absolutely. And it's interesting, too, because there is this alternative and, and conservatives should do a better job of promoting their worldview, their approach to these things. For example, just in the area of academia. I mean, I find Peter Singer, who's a bioethics professor at Princeton University, detestable. Uh, His promotion of infanticide is despicable to me. It's disgusting. It's also weak philosophy. But um, nobody like me is running around saying Peter Singer can't be employed by Princeton. We should boycott him. We should end his career. We should do this. We should do that. We should take what Peter Singer is saying and we should engage and we should dismantle it intellectually so that people understand that his position is the morally and intellectually feeble one. That's the approach that we could take in the society that people who truly believe in free minds and free markets will take. And there's just not enough juxtaposition of sort of the two um, modalities from which we choose. Right. Exactly.
6: And again, it's, 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 that's you know it's a very good point. that you know, there are lots of ideas we disagree with, lots of ideas we find, as you say, um, abhorrent. And ones that we, you know, there are lots of people on, we certainly know that these days, there's people on campuses and elsewhere who hold extreme views um, that many people would find abhorrent. But again, it's that the right way to tackle those views is to expose them, is to examine them and to say, look, here's what the, the, the actual implications of this are. Here's what it would mean. Here's the way uh, this idea, this proposal would work. and, and, and most, And then to explain so that most people can say, you know, we don't like the consequences of that idea.
2: He is Gerard, Bar- Gerard Baker. He is editor at large of the Wall Street Journal. Gerard Baker, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Where are
0: you? The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof. Show.
2: Welcome back. We've uh, come a long way baby since the heady days of March and early April when the World Health Organization was standing by its recommendation to not wear masks if you weren't sick or you weren't caring for someone who's sick to Tony Fauci's equivocating on the topic of mask wearing to now mandates for mask wearing and at the state level, city level, around the country. Uh, in Georgia, a fight between Brian Kemp and municipalities over face, face mask mandates. In Illinois, Governor Pritzker suing schools on behalf of the state that uh, are planning to reopen their schools in the fall, in a month, and not require masks. So uh, masks becoming, uh, the uh, again, the, the, the virtue-signaling uh, political football of the moment with respect to COVID-19. Uh, And uh, weighing in on that uh, was former White House doctor, Dr. Ronnie uh, Jackson, Dr. Ronnie Jackson, who's a GOP congressional nominee in Texas. He just won a hard fought primary. He was uh, President Trump's White House doctor for a time until he left to run for office. He was asked recently on Fox and Friends, his view as a medical professional, about mask wearing.
8: I think wearing a mask is, is a personal choice, and I don't, I don't particularly want my government telling me that I have to wear a mask. Uh, and so I think that's a choice that I can make. We know a lot about this virus now. We know uh, the mortality rate is probably less than 0.1%. We know that it doesn't really affect children. If they do get it, they don't get sick. And uh, so I think you got to look at your personal circumstances. You got to look at your surroundings. You got to decide if that's right for you. And I'm a firm believer that that's uh, at this point a personal, a personal choice. And uh, I encourage people if they want to wear a mask to wear a mask. But. Uh, I, I don't wear a mask all that often, to be honest with you.
2: Yeah, and uh, maybe they should look at uh, some of the science, too, and frankly, how weak the case is, even if it makes you feel comfortable. If it does, I'm agree with Dr. Ronnie Jackson. You want to wear a mask, wear a mask, uh, have at it. But, uh, you know, don't uh, tell me that it's up when it's down when it comes to uh, the power of the evidence with respect to mask wearing if you are going to though you might as well creep people out as much as possible that's always my approach so right now i've been sporting the uh, i've been sporting the bane mask from batman but uh i may mix it up and um go with something from mask alike this is a uh, line of face masks uh from a company in san francisco that can be customized with any image of your choosing including a selfie so uh Did you ever see uh, Boardwalk Empire, the show Boardwalk Empire with Steve Buscemi playing Nucky Thompson, the mayor of Atlantic City during Prohibition? Uh, Well, if you have, uh, when I'm talking about the selfie mask, think of the, um, the Richard Harrow character in the movie, the guy that becomes an assassin for Nucky Thompson. The guy got half his face blown off in the war, and so they have, like, a plastic plaster half a face made that even has, like, his mustache drawn on, half the half of his mustache drawn on the mask. That's what you should think about when you think about the selfie, except it'll just be, like, from the bridge of your nose down to your chin, and it'll, like, be a facsimile of what the bridge of your nose down to your chin looks like, but it'll just be obvious that you've got, like, a cut line right below your eyes where half your face is. And it makes you actually look sort of ex machina-ish, sort of plasticky and creepy, sort of serial killer-like. And that's why I'm anxious to get my mask-alike, my selfie mask-alike, to creep the fear-addled and the virtue signaling out as much as humanly possible. It's the least they deserve. This is Dan
0: Fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show.
3: You are fake news.
0: Is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show.
2: The uh, message on hydroxychloroquine ever since Trump proposed it as a possible therapeutic for COVID 19 patients has been uh, one of everything ranging from we don't know to outright dismissal because President Trump opposed it, uh, many suggesting, many uh, medical doctors and public health professionals suggesting that it may have some beneficial effect for some patients in certain stages of the disease, but it also carries risk. Well, uh, a, uh, the science has never settled. That's axiomatic, even though that's not how many on the left uh, talk about science. That's because they're ignorant or political or some combination of the two. And so there's a study that's been done by a nonprofit that looked into all of the available research on hydroxychloroquine, particularly as it pertains to the associated risks. This was done by Dr. Chadwick Prodromos, who is the president of Illinois Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Centers. He's the medical director for the Foundation for Orthopedics and Regenerative Medicine, Forum, which is the nonprofit that uh, conducted this review that we're to discuss. And he's an assistant professor at Rush Medical College, the Department of Orthopedic Surgery. Dr. Podromos, thanks for, so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
7: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
2: So um, you uh, did this deep dive. Uh, what prompted it, number one? Uh, who did it and what did you find?
7: I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Our foundation does a lot of work with stem cells, FDA studies, other um, things like that, which have been shown to be efficacious in inflammatory arthritis, things like rheumatoid arthritis. So we deal with the immune system um, a lot. And the drug hydroxychloroquine has been out there for 60 years. Trade name is Plaquenil. And you know, it was interesting to me that Plaquenil has always had a reputation as a very mild and very safe drug. And was talking to some rheumatologist friends of mine who said, you know, we've never seen a hard problem with this drug ever and, and uh, we don't get EKGs. So I, you know, I read the report from the um, FDA, they quoting, in light of ongoing serious cardiac adverse events and other potential serious side effects, yada yada risk, you know, outweigh the benefits. And they, and they recommended that not be used except in hospitals. So I thought, well, you know, let's see what the science shows. So our foundation did a, a comprehensive literature search, every article we could find um, on the heart and hydroxychloroquine. Um, and so here's what we found in a nutshell. Um, number one, um, and I, I, I don't want to get wonky, but it, it changes something in the EKG called the QT interval, makes it longer, and this can predispose to something called torsade de pointe, which is a ventricular arrhythmia. Bottom line is that can be fatal. So the inference was made that because hydroxychloroquine changes the EKG, that people can die. Um, however, we looked in the literature. And in every study we found, and we looked through hundreds of them, there was not a single, and is not, a single reported case of somebody actually dying from this arrhythmia. So while it does change the EKG in some people, there is still not a report of anybody um, dying. Uh, furthermore, if you look into people like Didier Raoul, who's a famous, brilliant epidemiologist, infectious disease doctor in France who's treated thousands of people with this, he takes the step of getting an EKG early, he monitors people, he's had great success. So the first point is that while the potential risk exists, it, it doesn't appear, if you're at least reasonably cautious, that people die. Now, you know, it may have happened here and there but if it does happen it's rare completely to our surprise was that there were recent articles just in the last few years good journals good meeting card meetings cardiology rheumatology that showed that in fact it's cardioprotective and very cardio protective. So, for example, substantial decreases in, because there's a huge literature of people who have used this for lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, other things. So, um, markedly decreased risk in cardiac events, decreased thrombosis, uh, decreased arrhythmias, it even decreases your cholesterol. There's even a study of pregnant women who were on this versus others, and they found that their babies were much healthier, fewer deaths. Um, Etc. So I talked to Dr. Friends of mine because I was surprised to find this and vetted this by eight or nine very smart people. And I guess because the research is new, nobody knew. I think people still don't realize that it's cardioprotective. And then, and then of course the fact that it is very safe if used well, particularly in light of the new study from Henry Ford showing that the drug cut the death rate in half when given early. Um, I, I just thought it was something people should know about so they can use it without there being um, reservations.
2: Uh, I know you've got a medical degree from Johns Hopkins. You uh, mentioned you're an orthopedist, but um, you're not an infectious disease expert. And so those uh, individuals that reviewed uh, the uh, study, the look that you did, uh, did, did they include infectious disease experts?
7: They did. They, and, and, you know, it's interesting. They included infectious disease experts, um, uh, rheumatologists, cardiologists. And so you have to realize, too, infectious disease doctors use this drug, but the drugs that they have the greatest expertise with are antibiotics. Mm-hmm. This is not. This is an immunomodulatory drug, um, very much akin to the work that we do with stem cells. So it's kind of a, a drug. You know, infectious disease doctors have learned about it and used it. But the, the rheumatology aspect of it was, um, you know, at least as important. And then, then I've, talked to, um, I've talked to other doctors, um, pretty well-known people who I you know, won't mention here, um, people who are in the news who are using this. And, and I ran this by everybody and said, you know, am I missing something here? And to a person, they said, um, you know, we, we think these results look valid.
2: And it's interesting because, uh, of course, the FDA warned against using it outside of a hospital setting, but at the same time provided emergency use authorization for doctors to make the decision of its usage uh, in consultation with their patients and And just the uh, the heat of opposition to its usage was so disproportionate to even an understanding of what we thought the threat level was uh, it, it, it's a, it really it seems to me distorted the conversation about uh, this as a possible therapeutic again for some people at certain stages of the infection
7: yeah that's true and and, and to be clear. So the doctors don't need authorization to prescribe it. It's FDA approved off-label use so you can use it. However, when they gave these guidelines, people can sometimes stick to them and be aware too. So we're conducting another study, we're not done with it, but preliminarily we've looked at all the studies of efficacy and it, there was a trend that it is more effective used early, and this is what Didier Raoul had said too. So the FDA guidelines, I mean, they're just guidelines that say use it in the hospital. It's kind of the opposite of what should be done because you're using it at a point where it's much less likely, um, you know, to be beneficial. You know, one thing I would just add briefly: um, it is often used with azithromycin, which is an antibiotic, um, and azithromycin also alters the EKG. And people had said that the effects might be additive as far as deaths. So I won't go into the research, but we looked at all the articles there too, and it turns out that azithromycin also has not been associated with say, arrhythmia. In fact, there are even a couple papers pointing out that it's it's um, completely safe. Um, but you're right. I think you know i think the people who put out the guideline um meant well but um it, it absolutely distorted its use away from where it is beneficial
2: uh there was a, a a new study out from uh academics at oxford uh including an infectious disease expert uh jose Lorenzo, uh and, that uh, looks at herd immunity threshold and uh argues that uh While it was widely believed the herd immunity threshold required to prevent a resurgence of COVID-19 is in excess of 50 percent for any epidemiological uh, setting, uh, they demonstrate that that may be greatly reduced if a fraction of the population is unable to transmit the virus due to innate resistance or cross-protection from exposure to seasonal coronaviruses. The HIT uh, drop, the herd immunity threshold drop is proportional to the fraction of the population resistant when that fraction is effectively segregated from the general population. So here again, we say that it seems to me they're concluding that, look, if you protect the vulnerable, for example, top of the list, nursing homes and, and long term care facility residents and quarantine the infected, then you can get to that herd immunity threshold uh, that immunity threshold comes down uh, effectively and you can get on the other side of this viral spread.
7: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I'm very glad you brought it up. And I will tell you, there were five studies um, that all kind of came out into the public watch uh, two, three weeks ago that all impacted toward that point. The one you mentioned is one of them, great study. There was one from the University of Nottingham, which said that even taking all comers, the usual threshold that's discussed of maybe 67%, 60 or 70% applies to vaccines. And when they're spread by people, it's only about 43%, they estimated. There was a study from the Karolinska, a very prestigious institute in Sweden, which found that they found 15% Uh, people tested positive for antibodies only, but when they looked at T-cell immunity, the real immunity was 30%. So this is much closer to what you would uh, need. There was a uh, study from Germany which showed roughly 80% cross-immunogenicity, meaning you got some resistance just from having had uh, colds. And the other thing that's that's a really important point that I've also been discussing with my epidemiologist, epidemiologist friend, um, is that people talk about herd immunity as, oh, well, you get to 65% and you're done, cured, right? And, but, but the thing that happens is that you have to realize there is kind of a sliding scale herd immunity relates to what you just said, Dan, that if you get some people, if you can get some people to, be, uh, to have the cases, not get sick, young people in schools, for example, um, they will slow the spread of the disease. They will bend the curve, as it were. So this is, this is a useful thing.
2: Dr. Chadwick Podromos, president of the Illinois Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Centers, medical director for the Foundation for Orthopedics and Regenerative Medicine, and assistant professor at Rush Medical College in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery. Dr. Podromos, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
7: Yeah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here.
0: Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back. We uh, move from a discussion of COVID-19 to a discussion of one of the casualties, not uh, directly a casualty of COVID-19, but concurrent with the viral outbreak. America first overtook England in the fashion industry when the Edwardian morning suit became Demo, uh, demo Day and was replaced with the modern sack suit. That is, the three-piece ensemble whose coat, waistcoat, and trousers were all made of the same fabric. At the heart of this revolution was a single family-owned clothier, Brooks Brothers. And uh, Brooks Brothers uh, announced its uh, imminent disappearance to not much fanfare for a 200-year-old company and the signature uh, and iconic American brand. Michael Warren Davis, uh, who I was, uh, whose words I was reading there, writes, Brooks Brothers is anything but dreary, as some accused it of being, unless you're a Brit, of course, and you prefer something in fluorescent blue that bulges around your hollow chest. But the sturdy, sober Yankee gentleman can ask for nothing better. I love that. Michael Warren Davis, he is the editor of editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine, joins us now. M.W. Davis, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it.
9: Hey, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure. And
2: uh, <clears throat> you can add to that title, Hypocrite,
9: because i am actually dressed head to toe in Brooks Brothers right now from my, uh, the handkerchief in my front
2: pocket to my leather slippers. So it's, uh, it's a hard habit to break. Hey, well, I understand. And it was a fine elegy that you provided for Brooks Brothers. Uh, um, so what is the story of its demise and why is it's the story of Brooks Brothers important from uh, an American perspective?
9: Well, this goes back to the 1980s when Brooks Brothers was bought by a British retailer called Marks and & Spencer, and they they really started to scrub all the hallmarks of the brand. They, uh, they introduced a line of casual wear that included a, a leather jacket, which is just unfathomable if you knew the old Brooks brothers and they also took off the signature golden fleece from their polo shirts, which is, um, you know, it's absolutely iconic. Most recently seen a uh, very amused to notice on the, uh, the gentleman in St. Louis, the lawyer who was, uh, standing on his front porch with an AR 15 telling the black lives matter protesters to move along. Um, but it, it's the, my, uh, my, my old boss, Damian Thompson, wrote, a, probably, I would say, an even better eulogy when he talked about how Brooks Brothers actually invented the, uh, the button collar shirt. That was called, called the original polo shirt because it's what gentlemen would wear when they were on horseback to keep their, the, the wings of their, of their collar from flopping up and smacking them in the face. Um, <clears throat> when they, but, you know, at Marks and Spencer, for some reason, they changed the style of the collar. So it became kind of flat and bland as opposed to this beautiful rolling sort of S-shaped collar. Um, but that was the only the beginning of the decline. And uh, after about 13 years, the company was bought by a man named Claudio Del Vecchio, whose father Leonardo Del Vecchio owns Luxottica, which you've probably never heard of, but you've probably heard of virtually all the brands that Luxottica owns, which includes Sunglass Hut, uh, Oakley uh, Oliver Peoples—it's uh, the la- one of the largest retail empires in the world. Leonardo da Vecchio is the 50th wealthiest man in the world, and uh, so his son, who has absolutely no experience with American fashion, sort of came in and set up shop, and he really ruined the brand. He probably irreparably damaged what Brooks Brothers is. He removed all of the signature cuts that had been part of Brooks Brothers um, since the since its founding 200 years ago. Um, he introduced a bunch of these uh, really funky European, Italian, and British cuts, uh, which we'll go into more later. Uh, and He brought in a, a, a sort of a high, cut, what would you say, hot couture um, New York designer named Zach Posen, who released this uh, line called Red Fleece. And Red Fleece is it's kind of an urban, hipsterish, blended with traditional, what we would call preppy, and uh again just very t- everything fits very tightly uh it's very 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 cheesy and absolutely nothing to do with traditional american fashion which was so th- Brooks Brothers
2: home so they tried to be all current and and they got bit of course which uh, when you when you uh, right when you undermine your own brand your own value proposition to try and reinvent yourself that can that can happen and so it did to brooks brothers
9: and they've completely shed their most of their traditional loyal customer base um, i guess the other one of the other big factors i was talking to your producer before we started. He said, "You know, I, I I noticed that you know when I the last few times I've shopped at Brooks Brothers, you know they're uh, they've they've had these you know a lot of teenagers just sort of lazing around the store, not really doing anything. And I and I didn't realize it until I he read my article. He said um, that they had gotten rid of commissions, and that's a I mean that's a if you know anything about menswear, that's a huge thing because the part the huge part of the reason that the salesmen are motivated to sort of learn the trade and be very good and to help you get the very perfect fit is the fact that they get you know maybe a ten percent of whatever profit the company makes. You get rid of that, you get rid of all your experienced salesmen. You get rid of all your experienced salesmen, then no one's building relationships with the customer. And no one's sort of inculcating them into the brand. No one's developing these these lasting relationships that bring generations and generations of shoppers back to the, to the same store. And, very, very
2: sad. And it is lamentable when you have an iconic American brand like that go by the wayside as you write in your piece, outfitting every presence in Sean Quincy Adams' Ulysses S. Grant commissioned Brooks Brothers to make uniforms for his union officers. T.R. did the same. Theodore Roosevelt did the same with the Rough Riders. Uh, Abraham Lincoln dressed in a Brooks Brothers suit the night he was assassinated. So, I mean, it, you know, these these aspects of our culture uh, that are in, inextricably tied to our history, you know, provide that much more meaning uh, to the brand and, and texture to our understanding of American history.
9: There are things, too, that you would never really guess actually would have come from Brooks Brothers. So Madras Cotton was first introduced by Brooks Brothers into the American market. Um, they actually developed the uh, the pink dress shirt, believe it or not. That was their invention. They, they did it because, you know, guys like me in North, Northeastern... Yankee types. Uh, we tend to be a little ruddy in complexion. Might have to do a little bit with the, the extra tipple of gin. Um, and white <laughs> shirts often don't really look very good. They make you look, they make you look rosy, and uh, you don't want to look rosy. So pink is actually more flattering. And this was before pink was considered a girl's color. This was when you know pink was considered a you know, very standard color for men to wear. Uh, and which is why you still see respectable conservative gentlemen wearing uh, pink dress shirts. That was Brooks Brothers. And the list goes on and on, Fair Isle sweaters, things like that. But, uh, again, the, the the one that kind of has cut, has cut the deepest for a lot of Brooks Brothers, they is uh, when John F. Kennedy was elected president, he was uh, kind of a fashion pioneer himself. Some of the things that he did were not so good. He was the first president not to wear a hat when he went out. That's too bad. The loss of hatting is sort of uh, one of the more grievous most American fashion. But another one of the sort of more positive things that he brought in was uh, the athletic cut suit. So there was a respectable way to wear a suit that was a little more tailored to gentlemen who were uh, thinner, not, you know, not barrel-chested, uh, slighter, and tall. And uh, that was, they called it the Fitzgerald Cut. They named it after him, and it was the very first of its kind. And one of the things that the Delecchio family did was get rid of the Fitzgerald Cut and replace it with a, uh, a, a British-style slim fit called the Regent Fit after Regent Street which used to be Brooks Brothers' main competitor. You either shopped at Regent Street in London or you shopped at Brooks Brothers on Madison Avenue. So Del Vecchio, probably having absolutely no sense of this because he's an Italian, nothing against him, but he just doesn't know these things, he completely sacrificed one of the hallmarks of the American brand and handed it back to the British, which had been America's principal fashion competitor for the last 200 years. And uh, and the the Regent Fit is really kind of... As I, as you, uh, I, I kind of made a subtle dig at it at the beginning of the article, as you mentioned, but the region fits are really sort of big in the chest and shoulders, not because British people are really big in the chest and shoulders. It's just to make you look kind of beefy and, and tapered, even if you're not. If you, you want to put absolutely no effort into your actual physical appearance, you can buy a British style And then. And that is just not the American way because we don't, we, Americans are stockier built We we come from hardy, you know, sort of pioneer stock. We don't need we don't need
2: that kind of that kind of shit. And I, I um, so this is yeah. And I and I completely agree with you about the loss of the hat culture too. I I occasionally try to to strike a blow for that culture wearing a a, a felt fedora in the winter and a straw in the summer. But um, yeah, you know I just just too. it just doesn't take. Uh, so but, you know. But I guess you gotta I know. enjoy what you enjoy. Uh, Michael Warren Davis is the editor in chief of Crisis Magazine, and he is now also our fashion correspondent, uh, ad ad hoc fashion correspondent, let's say. M- uh, Michael Warren Davis, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, the, the piece on Brooks Brothers was excellent. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Sir. Always a pleasure. No Take care. no time
5: left for you. No time
2: left
0: for you. You're listening to The Dan Croft Show on the Salem Radio
2: Network. Welcome back. Uh, before there was an autonomous zone in the heart of Seattle, there were Antifa thugs directing traffic and beating up reporter Andy No on the streets of Portland. And things have descended from there, as we've talked about uh, the last six weeks of uninterrupted uh, unrest, uh, a lot of incidents of violence, including an attempted arson of a courthouse, uh, a beating of a federal officer with a hammer. And uh, the mayor there, who, as I've said, would uh, Portland would be better served by having Kyle McLaughlin from Portlandia on his bouncy ball serving as the mayor. And I say this, by the way, living in a glass house I know in Chicago, so I would say uh, I would take Fred Armisen or, or the the uh, women and women first uh, bookstore owners as mayor of Chicago for Lori Lightfoot. So it's not just a problem in Portland, but it, maybe it's particularly acute there. The mayor there blaming first Trump— and then yesterday the police for escalating violence on the streets of Portland seems like an odd approach the political civilian authority to put themselves on the opposite side of the skirmish line with those committing acts of violence and not with police trying to prevent the violence and protect Portland residents but i guess that's an old notion of civil society i have the ACLU has weighed in on the topic here's what the ACLU is going on what the ACLU sees going on in Portland Uh, Quoting from their Twitter feed, usually when we see people in unmarked cars forcibly grab someone off the street, we call it kidnapping. That's what's happening now in Portland, and it should concern everyone in the U.S. Those actions are flat-out constitutional and will not go unanswered. They continued, ACLU, Black Lives Matter protesters in Portland are being assaulted, shot in the head, swept away in unmarked cars, repeatedly tear-gassed by uninvited and unwelcome federal officers. We won't rest until these federal officers are gone. Is that an accurate depiction of what's happening in Portland? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jason Rance. He is the host of the Jason Rance Show on KTTH in Seattle's Tacoma. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, So the ACLU, you heard what they have said about uh, what's happening on the ground in in Portland. Is that uh, your understanding?
10: No. When they say that these are Black Lives Matter protesters who are involved in this, they're flat out lying. Certainly there's some crossover, but the main groups that are causing the violence that the federal officials and the local police force are dealing with are Antifa members and groups that are loosely aligned with what they believe to be an anti-fascist movement. This idea that it's simple, peaceful protesters just does not tell the honesty about what's going on in the grounds. They're literally trying to destroy buildings. They're trying to set up their own autonomous zone, much like the one we had here in Seattle. They're calling it the CLAT, the Chinook Land Autonomous Territory, which does not roll off the tongue at all. (laughs) And they're the ones who are instigating the violence. And yet we're hearing from the ACLU and local leaders, from Ted Wheeler to the governor, uh, Kate Brown, trying to pretend that this is just federal officials coming in, overstepping their bounds when the federal officials are coming in because the local officials aren't doing anything to quell violence. We are at our 50th night of violence in Portland. And at some point, especially when we're talking about the threat to the federal buildings, which is what precipitated the federal involvement, you do have to just step in and and take things over. We heard from Chad Wolf yesterday, the acting uh, director of Homeland Security, saying, yeah, now's the time to make our stand. And that's exactly what they're doing. And I think they're right to do it.
2: And, and, And so those federal officers, though, it sounds like a Pinochet death squads that are making people disappear uh, according to the ACLU, or do you know of incidents where uh, people have been pulled off the streets and there's been some sort of extra, uh, extraordinary rendition to a black site and some faraway land for any of these street protesters?
10: Well, I love this because I'm reading some of the commentary and interviews with people who have been disappeared, which is kind of weird because if they've been disappeared, you wouldn't expect them to be so highly quoted in The New York Times and in <laughs> Oregon
8: Public Broadcasting.
10: But, I mean, you know, you, you read some of the stuff and it's very clearly over the top. Some guy said, Uh, He was detained briefly by the the secret federal police, and they pulled his beanie over his eyes so he couldn't see where they were taking him. I mean, like, come on. Obviously, that's not going on. It is true that there are federal officials out there who are going after and making targeted arrests for people who are suspected of committing crimes. Again, if the intent was just to go in there and literally disappear people, I kind of feel like we would see more than just a handful of these individuals who are getting arrested. What usually happens is you've got video that's taken completely out of context. Sometimes it's purposely edited out of context. Other times they just catch the video late, so you don't actually see the context. It's spread online by these Antifa-style groups, and they are essentially creating propaganda. And what you're seeing on the local level is very similar to what happened early on in Seattle when Chaz slash Chop was uh, started. You had local leaders who didn't want to get involved because – the people who are protesting, who are out right on the streets, who are committing the violence, they are the base of the local leadership here. And you don't want to piss off the base because you want to make sure that they keep you in power. So the second that Donald Trump said anything about Seattle, our mayor, Jenny Durkin, said, OK, now is my opportunity. This is Seattle versus Trump. And right. in a Seattle yep. city, that is a winning argument. And the exact same thing right now is having, happening in Portland. And, Chicago, than and, and both,
2: Chicago and New York and around the country. And, and, and I want to yeah. I, I, I want to pick it up there. we got a break, but I want to pick it up there, too, and, and develop that a little bit more, what Seattle looks like uh, after uh, uh, the independent nation of Chaz slash Chop was no more. Jason Rands hosted the Jason Rand show on KT KT I don't know why I can't say T KTTH in Seattle Tacoma. We'll be back with more right afterwards. It's a shame,
3: shame the way you mess around with the mess. It's a shame, shame the way you hurt me. It's a shame, shame. The way you mess around with the men. I
0: try. This is the Dan Proft Show.
2: back. We're speaking with Jason Rantz. He's the host of the Jason Rantz Show on KTTH in Seattle, Tacoma. Follow him at, on Twitter at Jason Rantz, R-A-N-T-Z. And we were talking about the uh the uh, violence in seattle and portland um i was folding in some of the other big cities including the one in which i live chicago because it's all of a certain kind both in terms of the violence it's just a matter of degree as well as in terms of the politics the mayors of these big cities the socialists that they are juxtaposing themselves against trump rather than juxtaposing themselves against the actual problems they're uh, in power to address like the physical uh, safety of their constituents uh jason you were uh, just saying you were making a comparison about uh Portland now uh, as compared to Seattle in the early days uh, during the rise of that independent nation called CHAZ?
10: Yeah, so what ends up happening is whenever the federal government gets involved, even making a comment, the local leaders in progressive cities get to turn the argument into us versus Trump. And it's a winning argument when you look at the regardless of what Portlanders or Seattleites thought about an autonomous zone and the antique of violence, they definitely don't like President Trump. Mm-hmm. And so it allows these leaders to deflect from what's happening in their own neighborhoods and pretending that this is just a fight against this authoritarian and Donald Trump. When of course it has nothing to do with that. This is just a president who decided, and it is political when he's getting involved in Portland, when he threatened to get involved in Seattle. There is a bunch of politics to that, right? I mean, he's yes. trying to brand himself as a law and order president. It's a good winning brand particularly since the Democrats are allowing this to go on. But it does mean that the local leaders are put a little bit off the hook because they get some coverage simply bragging about how they're taking on the president.
2: Although in Seattle, it's interesting because uh, now the city council has to take on the police chief, Carmen Best, who said this week after they moved to cut the funding of the Seattle police by 50 percent, that um, that was not a sensible policy. In fact, uh, if I recall correctly, she said it was reckless of the city council to do that. So uh, it's it's one thing to, to uh, uh, Mao Mao, President Trump. It's another thing to Mao Mao, your black female police chief.
10: Yeah, but uh, I've heard that point before. And with respect, it doesn't matter that she's black or female. Yeah. When you're a cop, you're treated much differently by progressives. Yep. Progressives love, they absolutely love unions, except for the police union. They absolutely love identity politics, unless you take on a profession that they don't approve on or you take a position that they don't approve of and then all of a sudden they really don't care the fact that carmen best happens to the chief of police happens to be black and female they're moving forward with a cut of 50 percent which would immediately get rid of 1100 employees 700 of whom are officers and almost most of those 700 would actually be people of color or other uh minorities uh women uh So, yeah, and they don't really care. They're just going after the police force. Have you ever heard of a plan that first says we're going to cut 50 percent and then we're going to come up with a plan to get to that 50 percent? It's just a ridiculous position. It's meant to get them closer to the abolishing of the police force. That is what their goal is. That is what their end goal is. And it's incredibly dangerous. We saw what lawlessness looks like. You guys have seen it in Chicago. We've seen it in D.C., Atlanta, when you don't allow cops to do their jobs. All of a sudden, criminals take advantage. That should not come as a shock to anybody. But specifically in the autonomous zone in Seattle, over a 10-day period, we saw two murders against black teenagers—a 16-year-old and a 19-year-old. We saw an arson, we saw an attempted rape, and we saw daily skirmishes and assault. So very clearly, it is not the right move to go after our police and not allow them to do their jobs. We're seeing it happen all across the country.
2: Do you see in Seattle and Portland uh, a prospect of progression uh, on the uh, reimagining of police like we saw? In it, what We're seeing now in Berkeley uh, becoming the first in the nation to uh, remove traffic stops from the police and uh, put traffic stops, the make traffic stops the charge of city workers, unarmed city workers.
10: Yeah, isn't that, aren't they so brave? Aren't they so woke to do that? I Meanwhile, all you're doing is putting these city, city workers' lives on the line. We've certainly seen innocent police stops lead to murders and assaults. In fact, just a few days ago in Bothell, Washington, two police officers pulled over an individual who just didn't have his license plate. One of the cops was shot to death. Mm-hmm. He was murdered by this individual. And so just think about the prospect of having an unarmed, untrained individual making a stop Against someone who is armed and dangerous and is going to shoot back. This idea that we're allowing this without any kind of meaningful conversation with law enforcement officials is absolutely ludicrous.
2: Well, I I understand, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen as it happened. It's going to happen. You you think it's going to happen in in big Seattle and Portland, you think that's going to happen?
10: 100%. It depends on how far they're able to go, and it depends on how far people are willing to stand up and speak out. For the most part, in Seattle, when some of these things happen, you, you As a radio show host who actually talks to the community, you know, we hear we're the silent majority, and I've been trying to say that's not acceptable to be the silent majority. You have to be the vocal majority. You have to speak up, and whether it's Seattle, Portland, Chicago, D.C., or any of these cities, if you're seeing what's happening and you are alarmed, don't think that other people think like you, but they just don't want to say anything. You need to inspire people to speak up and put the fear of God. In the eyes of these politicians, their political futures should be on the line if they decide to defund police, if they decide to quote unquote reimagine policing in a way that's going to be ultimately more dangerous for the community. And the only way that they fear that is when you speak up.
2: And I'll tell you what. Um that uh, city councilwoman you have there in Seattle, Sh- Shama Sawant. Um, she, yeah, Shama Sawant. Socialist. Yeah, yeah she, so, no, she makes that clear. I mean, and, and, I, and, and I say that as a, a good thing because it's an opportunity. I mean, she, you know, we're going to come for you, Jeff Bezos, the Amazon, and Amazon, if you uh, oppose our new tax increases, we'll come for you. We'll redistribute your company. I mean, she's, she's full force. It's nice to have somebody that out in the open. Now, what you need is somebody to fill the alternative vision bucket, so you can say, "Okay, are we going to go the Sawant way? Is this what you want, or is this what you want?" And crystallize the choice. It seems like a real opportunity for common sense residents of Seattle.
10: You would think that, but she has just won reelection. right? So the whole last election was pushed specifically on that. The way that we have council members, it's it's in the individual districts. We used to have it all citywide. She lives in a district that is where the activist community tend to live, mm-hmm. and so they keep putting her back in office, and it didn't do – Amazon in this last election put a lot of money into trying to get reasonable, more moderate Democrats and liberals in the council. It failed spectacularly. It, 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 was, a, it, it was a spectacular failure of a degree that no one thought was ha- would happen because they put so much money into it, and it backfired so badly. And the voters, some of whom didn't like Shama Sawant, some of whom didn't like some of the council members who were, re- who were reelected, they didn't like the fact that Amazon was trying to get involved. So this is a weird city. Uh, Portland is the same way. The Pacific Northwest in general is like this. It doesn't quite work out the way reasonable, re- reasonable people would think it would work out.
2: Yeah, apparently. I mean, I understand that living in Chicago. It's a similar commentary, but uh, it also calls into question that silent majority, if, if it actually still exists in uh, some places in this country or not. Yep. He is Jason Rance. He's the host of the Jason Rance Show. That's uh, 3 to 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific time on K-T- KTTH in Seattle, Tacoma. And, uh, Jason, where can people uh, get your podcasts and uh, listen to you online?
10: Yes, yeah, they can get the podcast pretty much everywhere it is.
2: Okay. All right. <laughs> there you go. They're ubiquitous. Jason Rance, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay.
0: Listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back. And uh, Dateline, Oak Park, Illinois. Oak Park, uh, Birthplace of Ernest Hemingway, featuring uh, some uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright designs, home designs, of course. Nuclear free zone. Right. They went nuclear free during the Reagan era. So wanted to make sure when Reagan initiated thermonuclear war that uh, the Russians knew that they could not target Oak Park because they had declared themselves a nuclear free zone. So, yes, this is a place that has been uh, daffy socialist for a while. Uh, So I get this letter from Oak Park residents who listen to my show in Chicago. And they write, Dear Casey. No, they write, A few weeks ago, my wife and I, along with a friend of ours from Oak Park, brought lunch for the police department. Turned out to be quite a logistical feat, given virus concerns. But we were glad to do it. We wanted to express our gratitude to the department for protecting us from the mobs that that had been rampaging through the neighborhoods. Now we have thought better of it. And he talks about taking his dog to the dog park. Last week, I noticed at the dog park we were being surveilled there by police. On one day, one dutiful officer actually did an abrupt U-turn to escort us there to the dog park. I later came uh, came to learn of the defacement of the Black Lives Matter street mural. Uh, This one not uh, at the hands of uh, New York City Mayor Warren Wilhelm. Black Lives Matter street mural to the north of the park. Uh, And uh, came to understand that police had been instructed to take special care that another desecration of the Black Lives Matter street mural not take place again? Can you deface a defacement? Can you vandalize vandalism? That's one of the questions of the day with respect to these uh, murals. Although I know some are municipally sanctioned, it uh, still is my a question I have. Uh, mind you, this it's not the uh, this insulting attention that angers me most. The uh, Author writes, the real problem is the prevailing hypocritical, not to mention self-aggrandizing ethos held by the OPAR community generally, and uh, including the police and, by extension, the citizenry, that a good, law-abiding, productive people have to endure. The ethos purports to be freedom-loving, enlightened, compassionate, inclusive, and conducive to every utilitarian end, and it's none of those things. My view is that government's only rightful role is the protection of citizens from wrong from force wrongly imposed on them by others. How shameful it is that not only uh, reg, that, that, that uh, the government not only regularly abjures that responsibility, but even uses that monopoly to abet the wrongful imposition of force on innocent citizens by those with malevolent intent. Yeah, that's sort of the state of affairs. Things are a bit uh, upside down, as uh, we've been documenting throughout the show, including Uh, the conversation we just concluded with Jason Rance from uh, Seattle, Tacoma, before uh, adding a little bit of of, of Chicago, Chicagoland, Oak Park specifically, flavor to it. Just to point out that this is happening not everywhere in America, but it's happening in a lot of places, and it's starting to seep into places where some of this nonsense is not so customary, or at least it hasn't been for generations, like in some of these hyper-liberal, hyper-leftist, really, not liberal, hyper-leftist cities and, uh, and hyper-leftist suburbs. It's, it's radiating from those bases. And that's a problem. This is Dan Proft.
0: Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show.
3: You are fake news.
0: Is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show.
2: The cancel culture is not a threat to civilization. Not a threat to civilization. Hmm. A specter is haunting Western democracies. No, it is not as the surging pandemic, mass death, or catastrophic unemployment. It is, if you believe Donald Trump and some of his critics, the end of free speech and the advent of cancel culture, quote-unquote. Um, Trump defined a new menace to civilization in his speech at Mount Rushmore, talking about far-left fascists, driving people from their jobs, shaming dissenters, demanding total submission from anyone who disagrees. Right. That's not happening? Okay. Uh, And then uh, that uh, begot the Harper's letter from mostly people who are on the left of some profile in academia and elsewhere. Uh, But um, the argument from those on the left, no, that's not really a threat. Free speech has never been more widely available than it is today. Oh, that's an interesting parsing. So much so that the cacophony of voices liberated by digital media too frequently drowns out well-informed and sensible opinion. That sounds like a minder. Trump, who blurts out several hot takes every day, is himself an example of the verbal incontinence enabled by Twitter in recent years. It's also true that historians, economists, and sociologists are able to hold Twitter discussions of a quality that shames much of what appears on the pages of major newspapers and magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, today, conservative as well as liberal and left-wing outlets feature a multiplicity of opinion and analysis except at the New York Times opinion page, I would add, but okay. Much more variety is still needed. Human experience is always growing, and uh, many uh, book and magazine publishers are sincerely trying to achieve it. Uh, But, uh, you know, there's nothing to really worry about, is uh, the overarching message. Do you think that's true? There's nothing really to worry about? Um, This is uh, a piece uh, by... uh, uh, Pankaj Mishra I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly um, that appears in Yahoo Finance Uh, it's the position that uh, many academics uh, and others on the left hold Uh, and it's redounding down to the students who argue that uh, I'm for free speech but I'm not for hate speech Uh, and so uh, let's get a handle on it because we we talked a little bit earlier in the show with uh, Gerard Baker from the Wall Street Journal is this a real thing Or are conservatives like me just uh, creating a bit of a tempest in a teapot over one-off incidents of uh, professional consequences for unpopular opinions and so forth? To help us, we're pleased to be joined again by William Jacobson. He's a clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law School, also the founder of the uh, excellent LegalInsurrection.com blog and president of the Legal Insurrection Foundation. Professor Jacobson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. So we're uh, overstating the threat that uh, some of the uh, intolerance for diversity of views on campus in corporations elsewhere uh, uh, presents. Are we overstating that threat?
8: No, I don't think so. I think that it is a real problem. Uh, It is something which is really focused on silencing people who don't have job protection, silencing people who worry about their careers. It's really not focused on the high-profile people who get attacked. They're simply the target, but the victims here is the, the larger society, and I know that because I'm going through it now at Cornell Law School. I published two pieces in early June about the Black Lives Matter movement. One was accurately recounting how the claim of hands up, don't shoot, based on the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, Missouri, which is the foundational narrative of the Black Lives Matter movement, is a fabrication. The Justice Department under Eric Holder proved beyond any doubt that Michael Brown did not have his hands up and he didn't say don't shoot. In fact, he got shot because he punched a policeman in the face and tried to steal his gun. Uh, so I wrote that. The second thing I wrote is that you cannot divorce the rioting and the looting and the tearing down of society that happened in, throughout the country, not just an isolated instance, from the foundational narrative and foundational philosophy of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, who are openly Marxist, who are openly calling for the destruction of the nuclear family, and who are anti-capitalist. So I said you can't divorce what's happening from the ideology of the leadership. Those two things have resulted in a series of actions against me. There's an alumni email and petition campaign to get me fired. There's a student boycott by over a dozen student groups of my course. There is a public letter of denunciation signed by 21 of my colleagues. And there is a dean statement denouncing me as not conforming with the values of the law school. And so this is what we talk about with cancel culture. Now, I have job protection. Not tenure, but it's something similar. So the dean also announced that I wouldn't be fired or no disciplinary action taken because of my job protection. But that's not the point. The point is, you have a lot of people who are unprotected. I've received uh, many, many emails from students privately who say a lot of people in the building support you, students, but we're all afraid to speak up. And that's, re- that's really what's happening. It's, it's an enforced silence and conformity. But don't focus on me. Don't focus on J.K. Rowling. Don't focus on the people who have protection. It's all the people who get scared and bullied into silence. I've received hundreds, multiple hundreds of emails from around the country once I went public with my story from people who say they're scared to death to speak up at work. They're not only scared to death to speak at work, they're scared to say anything outside of work that could be used against them.
2: Well, it's interesting because it it includes people who are protected. That's how severe uh, the culture seems to be. Glenn Lowry, Um, Last weekend in uh, the Wall Street Journal interview, as you know, an economics professor from Brown, so in the Ivy League, when he wrote a response letter to the Brown University president's letter talking about what the university's policy is going to be on on anti-racism and things like that, Glenn Lowry, who's a black American, uh, said, you know, basically, I don't appreciate it. I don't appreciate a a Brown University president uh, imposing a particular viewpoint on the university on a very very charged political uh, discussion and Lowry said in the Wall Street Journal weekend interview that he did about three of his 500 colleagues at Brown communicated their support to him, and that was privately, just communicated to him at all. And 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 Lowry says, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I he, I'm I've got tenure, but if I was you know starting out, I didn't have tenure, I would only been at Brown a couple of years you know, there was no way they would tolerate the response that I issued publicly to the Brown University President's letter. So you even have people who are tenured, who are protected, who do know better, who are unwilling to privately say to a respected and accomplished academic like Glenn Lowry, hey, Glenn, you make some good points there.
8: Not, not a single person at the law school has spoken out privately to me or publicly about a really unprecedented student boycott of a course because of the professor's Political statements made outside of the campus and that have nothing to do with the course. I teach a course on investment disputes. I don't teach a politics course on race relations. I teach investment disputes. It's a very popular course. It's a small course, but we typically have three or four or five people applying for each spot. And there are a dozen, and so this is really unprecedented. They've set up essentially a political litmus test, that if you are a student who now takes my course, you are going against the Black Lives Matter movement. You are going against these other students. So they've turned an educational decision into a political decision. Not a single professor that I'm aware of, uh, not a single administrator has said, hey, you know, boycotting a course And putting this impediment, whether you have the right to do it or not, is the wrong thing
4: to do.
2: Yeah, you know, the Wall Street Journal uh, does this weekly Future View column, perhaps you've read it, uh, where it uh, surveys a a handful of uh, uh, undergrad and graduate students from around the country and asks them to weigh in on a particular topic. And this week it was cancel culture. And it's uh, it's sort of encouraging, and it must be encouraging to you to hear from students privately uh, who are supportive, because – While there are some opinions I definitely disagree with, and and, in particular on this installment with respect to cancel culture, there are a couple of paragraphs each. They're well crafted statements, they're thoughtful statements, Uh, they're measured statements. Measure. In this day and age, and 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 it's across the collegiate experience. It's not just Ivy League or it's not just high-profile schools. It's uh, people in a lot of different disciplines, a lot of different schools all over America uh, over the course of several weeks, if you read this column. It, It actually has provided some encouragement for me as somebody who's a bit fatalistic about where American culture is and intellectual freedom is, that you do have a lot of young people that are actually in these places, in these incubators, and they're seeing them for what they are and what they are not.
8: Well, I think at some point it will break through and some more people will get the, the courage to come out and to talk about these issues. But it's very tough. And I don't blame the students for being quiet because, you know, I'm 61 years old. I've basically had my career. Uh, and uh, but if you're 24, 25 and you're just about to graduate law school and you're going to go out onto the job market, you cannot afford to have out on the Internet. Things said about you, false things said about you that have been said about me, because every employer, prospective employer, Googles hires or hire somebody to do that. And if there's even a whiff of controversy about the person, they're not going to hire you, whether they're not going to spend the time to look into whether it's true or not, if there's these accusations. So I I totally understand. I don't blame the students. I blame the administration for allowing this uh, this atmosphere to to fester. Uh, uh, administration at multiple levels, university and law school level, deserve a lot of the blame here now, and uh, and it's unfortunate, but I hope at some point we get to the point where people can come out of the closet so to speak, with their personal views on political issues.
2: He is Professor William Jacobson, clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law School, founder of the LegalInsurrection.com blog and president of the Legal Insurrection Foundation. Professor Jacobson, good luck on campus, and thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having us.
0: ManProftShow.com.
2: Welcome back to the show. The Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture has recanted, in part, tweeting out yesterday, we have listened to public sentiment and have removed a chart that does not contribute to the productive discussion we had intended. The site's intent and purpose are to foster and cultivate conversations that are respectful and constructive, and provide increased understanding. This, in response to the criticism over charts, we went over in some detail at the top of the show on Thursday. This, uh, these charts, where there was a good deal of thought put into it, the chart. Aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture. I'll go through this uh, briefly again. You know why? Because it shouldn't be forgotten. They shouldn't be able to just wave it away and dismiss it as saying, oh, you know, we, it, it, our good intentions went awry. Is that what it was? Just good intentions, an honest mistake? The uh, charts preface, white dominant culture or whiteness refers to the way white people and their traditions, attitudes, and ways of life have been normalized over time. And they're now considered standard practices in the United States. And since white people still hold most of the institutional power in America, we have all internalized some aspects of white culture, including people of color. The internalized aspects of white culture. So what are those aspects and assumptions of white culture? And by the way, to the extent you're arguing that other races have uh, internalized aspects of white culture, you're saying – The aspects I'm about to read you from them are unique to white culture. Individualism, independence and autonomy are highly valued. White culture only. Now, it has seeped into other cultures. Is that right? Individual and autonomy. The desire for those things is uniquely white. Other races start out desiring to be dependent and subjugated. Well, there's a group that doesn't understand natural law. That's for sure. Uh, Or anthropology, it's absurd. Right. The the desire to be free is a feature of being a human being. (laughs) That's not what they said. Family structure, the nuclear family, father, mother, 2.3 children, that's the ideal social unit. That's a white thing? Um, It was uh, white, black, and other thing for... Most of the last two centuries up until about the Great Society when it started to break apart, thanks in large measure to government policy and the incentives presented. And the increasing secularization of society, sort of the two go hand in hand. The nuclear family, that's something that only white culture value. That's funny because uh, the as we've heard from Bob Woodson on this program, the illegitimacy rate of uh, black Americans in, under Jim Crow in the first half of the 20th century, was single digits. So there was value placed there. Was that just black people internalizing some aspects of white culture as this cultural institution, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, asserts? Hard work is the key to success, really. To the extent that other races, non-whites, know uh, or practice the idea that hard work is the key to success, they learn that from whites. There's no history of that in their cultures. Well, that's not true. Of course it's not true. It's idiotic. And so they rescinded this. But he, here's, and, and and again saying, you know, did, we had intended. Didn't This doesn't contribute to the productive discussion we had intended. Well, you know why it doesn't contribute to that productive discussion? <laughs> because you're promoting the thing that you ostensibly decry. What this chart is. I posted on social media. You should check it out. You should keep a copy of it. This is the bottom of identitarian politics. And I don't know if we'll continue to stay at the bottom or we'll start to swim back to the top. But this is the bottom of it. Peddling the poison of victimization ends with arguing things like hard work and linear thinking, also argued here, are aspects unique to white culture. In other words, this is where identitarian politics brings you. You wind up promoting the white supremacy you decry. And that's the only way it can end if you say that these cultural aspects are dominant. This race is dominant. We are permanent victims who can't do anything about our victimization status except uh, as it pertains to making successful appeals to the dominant white culture. That's where it ends. This is what James McWhorter was getting to in his piece, dismantling Robin DiAngelo's bestseller, White Fragility in the Atlantic yesterday, which we also went over. But I didn't get to his summation, McWhorter's. And you should hear it, and you should read it, and you should keep a copy of this op-ed that he wrote in the Atlantic as well. McWhorter, who's a uh, linguistics professor at Columbia. White Fragility is, in the end, a book about how to make certain educated white readers feel better about themselves. And I would add, uh, and uh, certain hucksters like Robin D'Angelo, rich. But feel better about themselves while getting rich, peddling their pablum. Back to McWhorter. D'Angelo's outlook rests upon a depiction of black people as endlessly delicate poster children within this self-gratifying fantasy about how white America needs to think, or better, stop thinking. Her answer to white fragility, in other words, entails an elaborate and pitilessly dehumanizing condescension toward black people. The sad truth is that anyone falling under the sway of this blinkered, self-satisfied, punitive stunt of a primer has been taught by a well-intentioned but tragically misguided pastor how to be racist in a whole new way. Isn't it? The infantilization of people for their own good, the infantilization of people for my atonement. What's the net result of it? Fostering dependency, removing agency, forestalling opportunity, forestalling it, foreclosing it, and, uh, meantime, elevating the great guardians of equality, the the great uh, heroes of the fight Against racism or for anti-racism, I guess, is the more accurate description now. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, remember, this is an institution, Smithsonian Institution, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Uh, The same one, oh, by the way, that uh, had to be essentially publicly shamed into including Clarence Thomas among its pantheon of great black Americans who've contributed something important to this country, which tells you a lot as well. It's one thing to say, you know, we only want uh, fellows, uh, we only want to, to profile those who are ideological fellow travelers. So we don't like conservative black Americans that the, the Clarence Thomas and the Thomas Sowell's and the Walter Williams and so many others. It's another thing to end up in this place and be so lobotomized by that ideology that you promote white supremacy at the same time as you decry it. You think by promoting it, you're decrying it. By promoting it, you're eradicating it rather than institutionalizing it. As McCorder says, finding out how or or learning how to be racist in a whole new way. And frankly, a more even more destructive way, a more destructive way, a culturally enforced way in an era where we no longer have it as state enforced. And where so much opportunity is present, but not down this road. It's not. This is Dan Proft.
3: I asked the guy why are you so fly. He said, "Funky data. Funky data. You're
0: listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Welcome back to the show. And uh, here again, we have COVID-19 lies, damn lies, and COVID-19 statistics. State of Texas yesterday removed 3,484 cases from its COVID-19 positive case count because the San Antonio Health Department was reporting probable cases for people never actually tested as confirmed positive cases. So um, as one poster on the topic asks, what other health departments are making this same mistake or operating under the same protocol? Uh, uh, count it as, as it is. We'll go back and revise it down later. Uh, we got into this a little bit in, and it's still a controversial topic with respect to the assignment of of uh, proximate cause of death. COVID nineteen deaths. Anything you have COVID nineteen, regardless of what else you may have had that contributed to your demise, then it's a COVID nineteen death. Uh, and the obvious implication is there is a political desire to do some stat padding on the numbers to help sell the narrative that everybody should be in fear of their lives. So much fear that you get agreement to do things that you otherwise know or should know to be untrue, like the idea is that the sensible policy is to have kids in primary and secondary grade level at the primary secondary grade level not to attend school so fear riddled are people they don't want to go out even if it's safe to go out and they don't want to send their kids back to school even if it's harmful to their kids to not be back in school as we're see playing out real time locality by locality for more on all this we're pleased to be joined again by john miltimore uh, he is uh, the managing editor at Fee.org. That's Foundation for Economic Education, Fee.org. Leonard Reed's great organization. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Uh, before we get into this uh, this very good piece uh, that we talked about a little bit on my show yesterday, uh, your the New York versus Sweden comparison, which uh, turns out not to be terribly favorable to Andrew Cuomo. Uh <laughs> I, I, just your comment on the, the school matter. I mean, there really is a consensus of scientific opinion. I know that's a phrase that media loves to use in furtherance of their desired position. But, I mean, there's a, a legitimate, actual, measurable consensus of scientific opinion on kids returning to school and the uh, safety of it. And yet uh, L.A.'s not, San Diego's not, Atlanta's not, Chicago's probably not, and so on.
5: Yeah, I I think, you know, you're right. The the scientific literature on this is is very clear. And, you know, we've been saying for for weeks and months, and if you you look at epidemiologists everywhere, they're saying the the children are not the motor for this virus. Um, So the the school closures, I I, I think, you know, there, there was a former Secretary of Education on the program yesterday, and they asked him to cite any literature that could kind of support his reason that, you know, his reason that sh- the schools could be closed, and he couldn't cite any. So I think I, I think you're right that the, the scientific literature on this is pretty clear that, um, you know, there's, there's not a compelling reason to close schools.
2: And, uh, right, and, and, and yet it rages on. We had uh, Alex Barazal earlier this week on the show, microbiologist, uh, uh, Scott Atlas, the former head of neuroradiology at Stanford. They all say this is insanity to even even, even be discussing yeah. the question, If it should only be discussion of how it's it should happen. Now it's a how Dr. Fauci, Tony Fauci, a couple of weeks ago uh, in an exchange with Rand Paul before Senate subcommittee said, yes, I agree with you. We should get the kids back in school. And yet again, the the political power of the teachers union and the political effectiveness of inducing fear leaves kids out in the cold. It's really uh, perhaps one of the uh, outside of actual deaths, one of the sadder commentaries of this entire saga.
5: Yeah, you know, I, I made a joke about this not long ago, and I said a quick way to solve this problem would be, you know, to say, you know, teachers and principals and administrators don't get paid if schools aren't open, and I think this would this would go away that quickly. It'd be it'd be done.
2: Well, right, uh, and the reason that's a joke is because that will never happen. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's why. Yep. Not that it shouldn't happen. Not that if you don't want to work and it's safe to work that uh, that it shouldn't happen. But I uh, was speaking with Brett Bear earlier in the program on this. And exactly the point. What is the difference between physicians and grocery store workers and other frontline workers that were working through the the uh, apogee of the outbreak in March into April into May? What's the difference between them and the teachers' unions and uh, and, and the teachers as represented by the unions right now? The teachers' union. That's the difference.
5: Yep. And it, But, it, you know, it, it is. It, like, if you're a bartender and they close your restaurant, you don't get paid, right? And that that's, that's how it works. And, you know, I, I don't know why... I, you know, there. Well, I, I do know why there's this different standard for educators. And you're right; it is the unions that, that kind of have their back on this.
2: When we come back with uh, John Miltimore, managing editor of Feed.org, we're going to talk about that piece that I referenced uh, at the outset: why C- Sweden succeeded in fa- in flattening the curve and New York failed. The Sweden versus New York State comparison, uh, right after this.
0: Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back. We're speaking with John Miltimore. He's the managing editor of Fee.org, Foundation for Economic Education. Um, How did New York State compare to Sweden when it comes to flattening the curve and minimizing... The economic as well as uh, human co- other human costs associated with the viral outbreak.
5: Yeah, you wouldn't notice it from from you know a lot of the media reports, but Sweden actually has about one third of the death rate of, of New York State, and you know it, it's really strange. After I wrote that piece, I got all the, these emails from people in Sweden saying thank you. They don't understand why they're getting <laughs> hammered by U.S. media. Um, over this. And if, if you look, Sweden's done better than some countries. In um, death rate, they've done worse than, than some of the neighbors like Finland and Norway. But, you know, the, the real reason Sweden is getting hammered over this repeatedly is that they did things differently. They, they, they kind of took a different approach. And they said, we're going to try to, you know, confront COVID-19, but do it without these broad economic lockdowns, uh, which they, they are, you know, economically destructive and, and very hard to maintain for long periods of time. And that's the reason they're getting um, kind of, you know, in the media so much.
2: Yeah, uh, you, um, you make the comparison uh, why the media isn't looking at Belgium versus Sweden, for example, Belgium, which is similar in, in sort of population composition and uh, and size and uh, chose the lockdown approach follow the prescribed narrative of the press corps and obviously is doing much less uh, well than is sweden on the topic they don't want that comparison they choose sweden not based on the merits so much as based on you know they're making other people who followed what the media said should be done look bad
5: yeah. And, you know, I, I think we, we have to, and I do this in a piece a little bit, we have to look back and say, look, Sweden did flatten the curve, and they did it without instituting um, a lockdown. And, you know, if, if you talk to Swedish uh, public officials, they themselves kind of admit they could have done certain things better. Um, but it, it, those are less to do with the lockdown than saying that they could have done more to protect these at-risk populations. And I think that and you, it, it is, is what we learned. Don't, you know, that was where New York failed and New Jersey failed. And some of these other states, they didn't really, they, they, they failed to protect those at-risk populations. And I think that's where the, the, the focus needs to be. Instead of just telling healthy people and everyone just stay home, let's look at how we can protect those that are uh, really susceptible to this virus.
2: Well, and I'll tell you what, uh, frankly, uh, the Swedish officials' uh, humility they're willing to say, yeah, we could have done a better job of protecting the vulnerable, protecting those in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. We could have done a better job. The, the idea that some public official actually could have done something better, that is novelty in and of itself. That, we don't hear that from Andrew Cuomo, who made the most catastrophic decision of any governor, along with the other governors who did, like Phil Murphy in New Jersey and Charlie Baker in Massachusetts and, and Whitmer in Michigan and Pritzker in Illinois, sending infected people back into those facilities to, that advanced the spread. And yet... Uh, Andrew Cuomo is running around talking about how New York did it so differently. And that's why we were so successful as compared to these states like Florida and Arizona and Texas that have had a recent increase in cases, even as New York sits here with, you know, 10, 12, 15 times the total number of deaths as some of these other states.
5: Yeah, it's really bizarre to watch, you know, like I think I think we now know, like, you know, people, Said, okay, look, that was a crazy policy. We shouldn't have been putting you know COVID-infected you know, patients back into nursing homes. And but I'd like to have a, a little bit of an acknowledgement. It, 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 but instead, we're seeing this sort of celebration, this victory lap from people like like Cuomo. And it's, it's really bizarre. And, and I think Sweden did. They, they showed you. Over there, the other public officials were just more humble. They said, look, you know, we, we could have done some of this better. Um, it's an unusual virus. We're still learning. But it is a very stark contrast to what we've seen from you know Governor Cuomo and some of the others.
2: Well, and the other, uh, as we were discussing before the break about schools, the other thing is uh, Sweden never closed the schools. I think they've had one COVID-19 fatality under the age of 20, uh, none in the primary grades, and they never close the schools. They don't have any of the evasive actions. Not, you're not hearing the caterwauling from teachers, not feeling safe in the classroom that you hear from teachers in this country who still aren't in the classroom and don't want to be. It's uh, really remarkable with respect to culture, and it sort of belies the uh, left's, Fantasy that uh, Sweden is this uh, socialist utopia. They're 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 not they're not a utopia. No place is, but uh, they're also really um, not so government centric in orientation. Such that the government actually places its faith in the people behaving responsibly. Yeah,
5: I, I think you know we've at we've written about that several pieces. You know, there's this impression that Sweden is is, is very socialist and. And in some ways, you know, they're, they're a little bit more socialist than the U.S. And in some ways, they're much more free market. And I think your your take is exactly right. Sweden didn't close their schools. And even other European countries that opened their schools um, back in, back in you know, April and May, we didn't see rise in COVID cases over there. And their public health officials, you know, came out and said, look, we, we think, you know, closing schools is just something that we don't need to do. But in America, there is still... Um, really that that big battle still going on. And I do think, you know, I do think a lot of schools are we're going to see open in the fall. I, and that's, that's a hope. I got three kids myself mm. and trying to yeah. trying to educate kids at home in that environment. It, it's tough.
2: Yeah. And, and I'll tell you the, the other thing about, uh, uh, about that is, um, we're talking about these reckonings. One is the, the, the restraint that Sweden Swedish officials made from the beginning. And I go back to this interview that Johan Gusecki gave, who is a former uh, state uh, epidemiologist in Sweden. And he said, we think we're taking the right pr- approach, the evidence-based approach, the sort of um, measured approach. Uh, let's you know, operate based on what we know, not just uh, make wild assumptions and thus wild policy choices. But he also <laughs> said, come back to me in a year. You know, this is, yep. there's going to be ebb and flow to this. Come back to me in a year, and we'll see who chose the best course. So there's, there's not any arrogance about it. They think this is the approach we're taking. It's going to take a while to measure it. Don't get hysterical. And, you're, you know, and, and rather than what we're doing here, which is sort of living every day as if uh, we now have the complete understanding— and and and, uh, and and changing the way we keep score I mean, the proverbial moving of the goalposts like we're doing now, where we don't care about death and hospitalizations anymore. We only care about case, we only care about cases.
5: Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. From the very beginning, you know, Sweden has made it clear they were preparing for the long haul. And the more we learn, like that is the right path, because I, I get why there was a certain panic at the beginning. We didn't know the 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 fatality risk yet. Um, It was a very new, novel virus. Um, So early on, you could say, like, maybe you can understand why there's a sober reaction. But looking back now, it's clear Sweden did have the right approach where this virus isn't going anywhere. We should be building policies that are sustainable instead of sort of this frenetic reaction that we see today, where you're you're right, like, every day it it feels like it's um, a new panic. And you really can't create sound public policy in that environment.
2: He is John Miltimore, Managing Editor of Fee.org, Foundation for Economic Education, FEE.org. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey,
5: thanks a lot for having me on, Ben. I appreciate it. Yeah, great. Take care. Don't Bye-bye. Stop about
0: tomorrow. Don't stop. It'll to be here. It'll be here. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back. Where does she find the time? Uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, when she's uh, not trying to uh, figure out how uh, garbage disposal works. She's uh, boycotting, leading the boycott of Goya Foods because the CEO said something nice about Trump. And she's also chairing a task force for the Biden Presidential campaign to produce a Green New Deal plan, which uh, was produced and released this week by the Biden campaign. $2 trillion climate change plan. Uh, Mr. Biden vows to outlaw all use of coal and natural gas to generate electricity within 15 years, which is uh, not possible, but it is informative. He'd ban oil and gas production on federal land and offshore. He'd drive to quote unquote zero emissions cars. He'd apply aggressive new appliance and building efficiency standards, new environmental and climate justice division of the Justice Department to mete out jail time to corporate officials who pollute communities. Hmm. What about the governmental officials who do it? Uh, Biden is uh, proposing via this plan, as we've discussed at length. Over the many months to do what uh, AOC's former chief of staff said was the point of the Green New Deal, transform the American economy. And one of the ways it'll be transformed is it'll be much smaller. Yeah, it's uh, much easier to centrally plan when you have, uh, say, 200,000 fewer people uh, employed, which would be the result of a ban on offshore drilling alone. Just that one aspect I mentioned. There's 200,000 jobs. I don't know. That's uh, a curious approach to uh, growing out of uh, a lockdown as a result of the pandemic and the choices we made. Not just the virus. The virus is not in charge. We're in charge. These are the choices we're making. The path that we're charting cost 200,000 jobs just on offshore drilling. That seems like a lot of jobs uh, in just one sector of what used to be a dynamic energy sector when you're talking about uh, double digit unemployment nationally. But, hey, you know, that's me. I know that when it comes to the the Jacobin left, that uh, there are going to be some eggs cracked. I get it. Uh, Biden has endorsed a plan to kill the Senate filibuster, which requires 60 votes to move most legislation forward. Uh, has long served as a guardrail against drastic partisan proposals. Well, all the guardrails come down if the Democrat-Socialists control all three branches of government. And it's uh, not just limited to discussions of race. It's not just limited to discussions of lockdowns. It's your very viability and America's as the world's number one economic superpower going forward. That's what's on the ballot on November 3rd. And uh, it's good that the president and Biden is being forced to to some extent, are starting to flesh out some of the contrast on other issues, not civil unrest and pandemic related, at least not directly. Remember that frame I've tried to put on the choice this week, and I think you can push everything into it and create a nice little storyline, nice little narrative arc, uh, what they're proposing, what you see them doing, what all the evidence suggests versus what the president has done or has tried to do and is proposing. Everything fits into that. And uh, the president needs to have a week like he did this week, uh, more Mount Rushmore moments, more distillations of the competing visions on our energy sector and thus our recovery from the pandemic going forward for really every week between now and November 3rd. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the program. Please join us on the Dan Prof. Show again on Monday and have a great weekend in the intro.
0: From the fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof. Show.
3: You are fake news.